Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you again. And uh, we're going to be continuing in our series in Isaiah. I'd just like to say, make one or two comments. Uh, I just want to thank Eric and Kayla because uh, when you're on the sound desk and doing words, you know, you're on a bit of a hiding to nothing. It's either too loud or too quiet. And those guys were here, like for most of yesterday, trying to get it right. And I want to honour them for doing that. Let's do that. And also thank you for Ian and Natasha for leading us so beautifully and sensitively. And uh, it's very important in church life that we honour one another and take time to do that. So, we're here for just starting our second week, um, enjoying your mild Canadian winter. <laughs> we've been here in February before, and uh, we've come with all our Arctic gear, but um, yeah, we're enjoying being here. Um, I would love to see a bit more snow, but I know that if I say that, you'll all shoot me down. So, <laughs> um, I don't know if you heard about the little girl who was cleaning her house with her mum, and they were in the bedroom and they were dusting, and the little girl said, Mummy, I learned in Sunday school that uh, God made Adam, God made man from the dust. Is that right? She said, um, Yeah, yes, darling, that is right. And uh, she said, when we die, our bodies return to dust. Is that right? And her mum said, yes, yes, that, that's right. She said, well, look, quick, mum, under the bed, there's somebody who's either coming or going. <laughs> right. Well, that's got your attention. Now we'll get down to the serious stuff. <clears throat> so, as I said last week when I was praying about... Uh, coming to Fredericton and realising that I was going to be doing a, a preaching series here, uh, I felt God speak to me, and it was to me, first of all, personally, about this year being a year of favour. And as I was meditating on that, I felt God say to me, that's what I should preach on when I come to Fredericton. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that the year of favour is actually the whole of our Christian life when we know God. We live in the day of favour. But there are times when we get seasons of favour. And I'm more majoring, actually, while I'm here, on that season, but I'm also encouraging you to believe for uh, uh, a specific season of favour for you as a church. I love this church. Rosie loves this church. It's wonderful to feel part of the family here. And we pray for you often in Brighton and often look at your services on YouTube. And uh, we, we just love being with you. And I believe that you are on the verge of breaking out into a greater season of favour than you've hitherto enjoyed. But that season of favour is in the context 
of what we might call a day of favour. So we're continuing the series from the prophecy of Isaiah, focusing particularly on chapters 59, 60, and 61. And last week, we looked from Isaiah 59 about God's favour in redemption. Now, the whole of Isaiah is a prophetic book which has initially an historic context and was a message to the people of the day in which it was written. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings, and there are various references to events in their government and rule which would have resonated with the people at the time that Isaiah brought the prophecy. But he was also looking at years ahead, and that's often what prophets do. When he foresaw the nation being taken into captivity because of their disobedience to God. So there is a fair amount about the judgment of God in the book. But there are also other dimensions to this amazing prophetic book. Three years ago, Rosie and I had a holiday in the Lake District in the north of England. It's a very beautiful area surrounded by mountain peaks. Now, most of the peaks are reasonably accessible with good walking boots and poles, but we were actually on our mountain bikes, and we soon experienced that ascending these peaks on bikes was very strenuous. We then found that having reached one peak, that we were actually not at the top yet. And there were yet further heights to climb. And having scaled the next one, there was yet another one. Each time we arrived, we found there was a bit more to go. Now, prophetically, the book of Isaiah is like that. There is the original prophetic message to the people of the day, but once we've understood that, we realize that there is a further meaning. And when we've got that, yet another peak to ascend. Isaiah was prophesying about what would happen to the nation of Israel in further generations to come. <coughs> Furthermore, upon closer examination of the book's landscape, we realize that actually Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Lord Jesus to the earth. And some theologians have actually labeled the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. It is all about Jesus. Now, there are, of course, some classic passages that we read in the book of Isaiah that give us real clues to that. So, at Christmas time, we read from Isaiah 6, unto us a son is born, unto us a son, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's all descriptions of Jesus in the Old Testament. There are several of them. Isaiah, uh, in the 50s, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. All of those, clearly, about the Lord Jesus. And... Uh, Yet, when we read those, 
we find that there are still other peaks to climb. And as we see that Isaiah is also prophesying about the age of the church and describing how God's people will spread throughout every nation of the world and that the kingdom of God will be eternally established. But even then, we haven't reached the final height because it goes on to what theologians call the eschatological fulfillment. Now, you need your teaching to say that word. The eschatological fulfillment. It's about the end times and the future glory, the time when Jesus will come back and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the three chapters that we are looking at, 59, we looked at last week, 60 today, and 61 next week, are about Jesus, his kingdom coming to the earth as it is established through the church and where everything is headed as God's ultimate purpose is fulfilled. So, if you have your Bibles or your tablets, if you're old covenant, um, or your phones, please turn to Isaiah and chapter 60. Now, before I read it, there are some slightly obscure phrases in this. Now, Isaiah was not only a prophet, he was also a poet. And when we're reading scripture, we need to understand what we are reading and how we are to interpret it. So a poet will use imagery and rhythm and metaphor. So there will be some things in here that might be a little bit obscure, but please hang in there with it, because what I want to do, now if you were a, if you were a poet, usually your poem has a central theme, and the imagery, rhythm, rhyme, fiction, and so on, all express that theme. So that's what's happening in this book, but I'm going to major on the theme. So hang on there with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and uh, we'll start with verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together. They come to you, your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on your head. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance from my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. 
Who are these that fly like a cloud? So this is the imagery. And like doves to their windows. For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarsus first to bring your children from afar. Their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Just to say, all that imagery expresses the whole gamut of creation. Everything, the whole of creation. We sang that lovely song, All Creatures of Our God and King. Well, she's saying it in a different way. The sons of those afflicted you shall bow at your feet. Now, in this next verse, we've come to a big clue to this passage, what it's about, and which prophetic peak we're on. And this is the verse. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make you overseers and peacemakers and taskmasters of righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor by brightness shall the moon give you light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning will be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Well, that's quite a long reading. There's a lot in there, and I would encourage you to take hold of what I'm going to explain and read that through in the light of what I'm saying. Now, there was a very famous general uh, in the American Civil War who has become a legend in American history. His name was General Sherman, and he was particularly known for his strategic battle planning. 
He was also one of the first military commanders to involve civilians in warfare. He was a bit of a brutal man. His reputation put fear and intimidation into his assailants. A Confederate general trying to outwit Sherman's battle strategy at a time when Sherman was making inroads into the Confederate states tried to outsmart him. And instead of facing Sherman head on, he directed his troops to attack what appeared to be an isolated fort manned by the Northern Army. He had learned that this fort was providing supplies to the Northern troops and decided the best strategy was to attack this fort rather than confront the invading army. When they did, the fighting was fierce and many defending the fort were killed. However, when General Sherman discovered what was happening, he managed to get a message to the besieged fort and it has become a legendary cry in American history. The message lifted the hearts of the dispirited defending soldiers and the day was saved. The message was, hold the fort for I am coming, General Sherman. It lifted the hearts of the dispirited defending soldiers and the day was saved. Now on hearing this story, the American hymn writer, Philip P. Bliss, wrote a hymn, and some of you may know it, with the famous chorus, Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still, wave the answer back to heaven, by your grace we will. It takes the story of General Sherman and likens the church to the beleaguered fort surrounded by the enemy waiting for the return of Jesus. Now the second verse of that song is really depressing. It gets worse. See the hosts of hell advancing, Satan leading on, mighty ones around us falling, courage, almost gone. Now, this is a perspective of the church that many have today. A tiny minority clinging on in desperation, overwhelmed by the world. An anachronism in our modern world. Those who are in the church desperately waiting to be rescued holding the fort until Jesus comes back. This is not biblical theology of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The prophecy of Isaiah speaks of Zion, the city of God, being glorious. God has a bigger plan for his people 
than a bunch of confused people trying to hold on. Now, as the great hymn writer John Newton put it in a more theologically accurate song and prophetically correct, he says, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion's city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode, on the rock of ages founded. What can break thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou must smile at all thy foes. Thank God for hymns like that. So, from the book of Genesis, the theme of Zion as the dwelling place of God shows us God's plan to have a people here on earth through whom he displays his presence and glory. We may call this the Bible's big story. Now, I just want to make an important contemporary comment. We must be careful with Israel so much in the news today not to confuse the modern Zionist movement a godless, secular, political movement with the concept of Zion in the Bible. We mustn't confuse that. So when the prophet Isaiah is talking in this passage about Zion, the holy city of God, he is talking about the dwelling place of God on the earth. This great prophecy of Isaiah is referring to the glorious church that Jesus came to die for. After the resurrection and then the ascension, Jesus takes his place in heaven as the head of the church, Zion, and pours out his spirit so we can enjoy all the benefits and blessings that we were poetically reading about in that wonderful chapter 16. So, as we started to explore the theme last week of the Day of Favor, we saw the tragedy of separation between God and humanity because of the problem of sin. We then saw the blessing of God's intervention through the coming of Jesus to deal with our sin, the day of favor, the year of jubilee, was announced at the cross on the Day of Atonement. The day the high priest made a sacrifice to atone or to cover the sins of the people. It looked forward to that time when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die on the cross to atone for our sins. So we looked at that last week, and if you didn't hear last week's message, go online and listen to it, and it will help you to understand this. Now, in this chapter, Isaiah calls us to respond. He begins the chapter, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Now, don't be like the headmaster who was in bed, who used to wake up, in the mornings and say, good morning, Lord. But he was a bit under the weather and fed up with having to go into his job. 
And he woke up and his wife heard him say, Good Lord, it's morning. Arise and shine, for your light has come. Now the first two verses of chapter 60 set the tone for the rest of this prophetic chapter and should inspire us to believe God for great things in this day of favor. We have a contrast between darkness and light. We see in this statement a prophetic analysis of the state of the world before Jesus comes back to the earth. Now, there have been two main schools of thought in evangelicalism. Eschatology can be a very tricky subject, and people can hold strong views. It's important that we never allow those views to become divisive. But what we can be sure of is that Jesus is coming back. Now, there are those who live with the hold the fort mentality. So the world is getting worse and worse, and that when Jesus comes back, we will be raptured out of it and raptured out of the chaos. There are others who believe that there will be a great end time revival and the whole world will be Christianized. Now, theologians have argued over this for centuries, and the internet is full of podcasts and teachings from both perspectives. So, what should we believe, and what should be our expectation? Now, it's always important to come back to a thoroughly biblical perspective. And Isaiah presents us with a paradox of both these views together. So, let's look at verse 1 and 2. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Light and darkness together. Now let me use two illustrations. One from nature, and the other from history. So the first from nature. Rosie and I live in an area in the south of England, where there are some beautiful rolling hills. We call them the Downs. It's a place where the grass is very green, and the local sheep love it. However, in the late spring, the grass is covered with buttercups. It is still a grass-covered field, but it looks yellow. Now, whether the field is green or yellow depends on your perspective. Isaiah seems to suggest that in the context of gross darkness, light will shine. Let me use another illustration from history, and it concerns England in the 18th century. Historians would say that the 18th century was one of the most flagrantly immoral eras that Britain has ever known. There was terrible poverty, social breakdown, drinking to excess even with young children, crime was rife, 
children were neglected and sexually exploited. Politicians were corrupt. The church was run by ungodly priests. And all this in juxtaposition with extreme wealth that was amassed by the exploitation of the poor. The slave trade was at its peak, and social revolution was threatened by the intellectuals who perceived that the injustice in society needed to radically change. England was tottering on the brink of revolution. At the same time, God was pouring out His Holy Spirit in incredible revival power through the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield and John Newton, the converted slave trader. This revival brought incredible social change with prison reform, the ending of the slave trade, the establishment of hospitals, and a greater social awareness. Now, I love history. And the interesting thing is, if you read a modern historical review of the 18th century from a Christian perspective, you would be led to believe that the revival under the West, under Wesley and Whitfield Christianized the country. However, if you read the history of the same period from a secular humanist perspective, Wesley and Whitfield are hardly mentioned. It all depends upon your perception and where you are looking. So, does this leave us confused or depressed about the state of our world? It should not, because we have this glorious prophetic promise that in the midst of gross darkness, there is a call for the church to arise and shine. The glory of the Lord has risen upon us. We are not holding the fort while Satan attacks. We are to be the church on the offensive. Jesus' victory is our victory. God's plan is to have a glorious, powerful church which makes an impact on this world. This is what we are called to build here at Christ Central Fredericton in 2020. What year is it? <laughs> 2024. Isaiah sees the key to this happening in God's people, where he says in that pivotal verse 16, they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And that's what I'm looking at this year. The city of Zion was the capital, and it was on Mount Zion that the temple was built. It was the place where God's glory was manifested. When the temple was built by Solomon, the glory of God was so powerful that the musicians who led the worship couldn't stand up. You may remember Matt Redmond's great song, Lord Let Your Glory Fall. It's a kind of narrative of what happened. It's a song that reminds us. I've been in situations where that's happened, where we've been on the stage or praying, and the glory of God has come down, and nobody could play or sing. 
that's happened. In my day, I've seen that happen. Throughout the Old Testament, there were manifestations of the presence of God, but it was at the completion of the temple on Mount Zion that we see God's purpose fulfilled to dwell with his people. Unfortunately, if you know your Old Testament history, it didn't last very long. But it is in the New Testament that we see the fulfillment of this prophecy, where various writers like Paul, Peter, and the writers of the Hebrews equate the church with Zion. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, verse 22. You, this is New Testament church, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, I'm not just preaching to you this morning. I'm preaching to the whole of heaven. Angels are listening in. Hallelujah. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You don't go to church, you gather to him. It's his church. When we gather as a church, we are joining the company of heaven. So we don't invite Jesus to come to our worship time. He invites us to come to his. So, in view of this prophecy of Isaiah, what should be our response? God has a plan for his church to be successful, powerful, reaching out to the world with the truth of the gospel, reaching out to our neighbors to reach the nations. The call to arise and shine has come. So how can that happen? How will the glory of the Lord rise upon us? Now we saw last week that the day of favor begins with the day of atonement. When Jesus died on the cross, a sacrifice for our sins on the day of atonement, and the trumpet would have sounded on the day of atonement, Jesus has made all this gloriously possible. And through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he has now, from his throne, poured out his spirit. Let God arise. The manifestation of God's glory falling on the earth will be in a people flooded with the power of the Holy Spirit. It began at Pentecost when the church fulfilled Isaiah 60. They arose, filled with the Spirit, to usher in this era that was prophesied. God's glory through the manifestation of the Spirit, an era which would be sustained until Jesus returns, an era which would see further manifestations of glory as revival fires, revival rainstorms, revival tsunamis hit the earth. Even when the gloom and darkness of what was called the Dark Ages covered the earth, 
the Reformation brought the light of the gospel. God, give us another Reformation. We need it. History has shown what Peter called in his great Pentecostal sermon, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. The challenge for us in our day of gross darkness covering the earth is to arise and shine. Church, let's take hold of the promises of God and believe for a mighty outpouring of the Spirit that will usher in an era of evangelistic breakthrough. Signs, wonders, social outreach, love, joy, peace in the Holy Spirit. Arise and shine, for your light has come. When Psalm 68 says, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, that was a prefiguring of the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was going to be poured out. Joel says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see green dreams. I'm old enough to dream dreams, but I'm young enough to still be seeing the visions. Come on, church. Let's be a people flooded with the Holy Spirit. God arose at creation. The world was formed. God arose in the book of Exodus. The glory came down on the tabernacle. God arose at the time of David. The tabernacle was filled with glory as the musicians worshipped. When Solomon completed the temple, the glory flooded the place. They couldn't stand to minister. When Jesus broke the bounds of death on Easter Sunday morning, God arose. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, He arose. When in Acts 10, the Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles, God arose. Fredrickson, let your church arise. Be flooded with the Spirit. Go for signs, wonders, miracles, preaching the gospel, loving one another, not complaining, not being critical, loving and honoring Mother Mother, honoring your leaders, being at the prayer meeting, praying for God to build His church. Let St. Fredericton change. Let God arise in this city. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Let's just stand together. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that this church will be alive with the power of your Spirit. Thank you that there are many in this church baptized in the Spirit. But I want to pray, Lord, that it won't just be one baptism, that there will be many fillings.